Hey, I'm Omid Farhang, Chief Creative Officer at Momentum. My guest today, John Norman, Partner and Chief Creative Officer at Translation, which works with such brands as the NBA, Champs, Apple, Jeep, and State Farm, for whom John has helped shape and evolve the famed Cliff Paul campaign. Prior to joining Translation in 2014, John held positions as CCO of Shiat Day LA and CCO of the Martin Agency. He also spent eight years as ECD at Wyden Kennedy Amsterdam, where he created such legendary work as Coca-Cola Happiness Factory and Nike Write the Future. Part of his career was spent as design director for Benetton in Italy and as a graphic designer for Nike, where he designed the original and now iconic logo for the Air Hirachi. Upon his hiring translation, founder and CEO Steve Stout said, quote, I've been fortunate enough to work with some of the best artists in the world, Eminem, Jay-Z, Rihanna, and I felt like in the advertising business, I hadn't met many people I'd put on that level of talent. John was the first, unquote. Here's John Norman and I talking to ourselves. So the best place to start with anything is from the beginning. Ah. You come from humble beginnings in Terrell, Texas. What did 12-year-old John Norman want to be when he grew up? Mm, that's easy. I've got the drawings to prove it. Uh, a basketball player. Yeah. I wanted to be in the NBA. Give me a specific, a position and a team. A uh, point guard and Boston Celtics. Growing up with no team, because there was Dallas had no team, so... Yeah, you, know. you were Whiten in Texas, so you went Celtics. I was Middle Eastern <laughs> and in Arizona, so I went uh, Lakers. I didn't say that, but yes, I mean it was definitely. Um, actually, I I remember seeing John Havlicek play for the Celtics as a little kid, so it was kind of like basketball hit me pretty early. Was he the guy you looked at and you were like, I I'm just gonna outwork everybody and play like John Havlicek and die for loose balls? Yeah, I mean, from yeah, I mean, for me it was like you know, um, and it had nothing to do other than. I wanted. I knew I was white, and I wanted to be a point guard, and they were my idols, you know. Yeah. So, and yeah. you, you were a star high school player. You played a little mm. bit of JUCO as well. That's right. Um, what was the greatest moment of basketball glory? Oh God. Um, I guess in the North South All Star game in Texas, I hit the last second shot to win, so it was kind of cool. That's a good one. Yeah, but in high school, I missed my last second shot, almost in the same place in the state championships so or playoffs so it was like your your whole childhood was a gatorade commercial unto itself <laughs> okay thank <laughs> you totally. so much to john norman no, I thank you because jeff fiorello um, like you, our producer I mean, so and jsm music thank you to the one club being a and if you like the pod please share it and with then a friend. high school ended for me and you got to write a really nice review about, about it for me gush about i sort of got slapped in the face with like and been you can still call yourself a basketball player if you want but it's not a great look if the only place you play is like at a rec center right so like who exactly are you and what are you into and what are you about you know and i answered that in a certain way for you did you get to the answer being design and art pretty quickly, or was there sort of a journey to, to, to realize that? Oh, man, it's a, it was pretty quick. I mean, like, my in high school, my high school basketball coach was like a father figure to me, and he was his philosophy is Dean Smith, you know, from UNC, yeah. sort of this kind of respect. If we came to practice not ready to play, he'd tell us to go home. Um, and the place I went to, I was recruited, you know, I mean, no D1, a couple of D1 schools, but literally no one had ever heard of them, probably. And um, and I went to this JUCO because I liked their art department, you know, and it was in, he, the coach had a, a great winning, you know, uh, record, and but he was the Bobby Knight, and so he's the opposite of Dean Smith. And if you know basketball, it was like, they're like oil and water. They're completely nemesis, but they're, so he would, you know, punch players, 
run us to death till we faint, you know, passed out. And, and I just said, you know, I don't, I can draw. I don't need this. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you yeah. think you love the game and then you go and maybe play some D2 or D3 or Juco basketball and you're not getting money and you're still waking up at five in the morning. You're getting abused by some 50 year old man. You go, maybe I don't love this as much as I thought I did. (laughs) Well, also two sets of stitches in my eyes and a broken nose and players that were six, seven, that were as quick as I was, was I said, you know, maybe, maybe the NBA is not in my cards. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing. Decades later now, the NBA is your client and you've worked with some of the biggest athletes and players in the world. I wonder when you're on set or in a meeting with a player or someone like Adam Silver, does John Norman, the fan, ever accidentally undermine John Norman, the CCO? <laughs> oh, for sure. I, I I have talked to Chris Paul about, you know, record as the assist, you know, chasing John Stockton and just the the whole the whole folklore of it. Yeah, I mean, and just talked actually like basketball. I mean, it's it's great. It's really I feel lucky because I you know. At first, when I was at Nike, I would never do that. I used to work for Nike Design, yeah. and it was always, uh, you know, the athletes. I was, it was just like I was just learning how to talk to athletes. And as I get older now, I'm not really not that kind of – I'm not afraid to talk to them, you know, yeah. about, like, what it was like and what did they do. And I remember Clyde Drexler, I, he was on a set with us. And I just recently I said, dude, I grew up, and you were the Five Slamma Jamma in Houston. It was like that was it, man. I mean, I, mean, I said you guys were – um, our our idols for our team, you know, and he just said, "Oh man, I just I got really lucky." You yeah. Know? Does Adam Silver ever get involved in your work, or do you guys ever cross paths? <clears throat> we used to see Adam a lot more. Steve still sees him a lot. Yeah. Um, in the early days, we, uh, you know, he took us to a couple of games. We were with him at the time when he had let go of the Clippers coach. Um, Steve, Adam, and I were walking through the, the Nets, uh, the Barclays Center. I mean, everyone was like, yo, Adam, way to go. Because, you know, he had fired the, the really yeah, awful, Donald Sterling. awful, yes, yeah. awful, awful owner. Yeah. So, yeah. So and he, as you he, talk, well, he, but he does it much. He does through Pam, our client, right. you know what I mean, client, yeah. Right. But he'll chime in here and there. Just yeah. He's a unique type of yeah. of commissioner, so that's, a, that's just one of the thrills of the job. And even as you talk about interacting with players or, you know, sort of explaining a concept to players or just being on a set during, you know, some of that downtime. Um, There's a comfort level and an art form to that because I think we all kind of, we're just talking about, you don't sort of know what to do around celebrities. Sometimes you act like you're driving next to a cop or something, but, but actually for what you do, if at some point you're giving instruction or you need them to see sort of your confidence and idea, then it's important to, to establish some credibility with them as someone who knows, you yeah. know, the first thing about basketball at least. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, um, Chris Paul. I mean, we were just, just not not long ago working on, you know, some uh, some spots, and we were trying to work out a play with a with us, you know, a, a basketball expert. And, yeah. and I just took Chris aside. I go, man, what would you do here? You know, like, and he goes, man, I've been working on this this scoop left handed pass for an alley oop. I go, let's do that. Yeah. And so then, you know, we just did our thing, and yeah. it worked out great. But yeah. You so. you put you put the uh, napkin with the picket fence play drawing that you had <laughs> back in your pocket. You're like, let's go ahead and go with your play. That's right. Um, so you have a pretty extensive design background, and we'll get into mm. a little bit about uh, a little bit of some of the design work that you did before you ever really discovered agency life. But it is interesting to me with a design background. You know, you have one. 
um, Alex Bogusky comes from a design background. Nick Law comes from a design background. So many of the industry's best leaders sort of start there. What is it about design as sort of a, an entree into advertising that mm. led to or contributed to an accelerated mm. career, at least for you? Yeah, oh, man, that's a great question. I mean, I love the way you asked that question, too, because it's like, I mean, I learned, I didn't know what design was when I went to school. I had a, a unique teacher. Um, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, Rob Lawton, on the same night um, Steve Jobs and Pika and the, uh, people like that were. And he was yeah. the only one that got a standing ovation. <laughs> and, I, and I wheeled him out in a wheelchair. But he, he taught everyone concept first. So it was like this thing before you could even really start to draw letters or d design or do any, any type of typography or graphic design, you had to come with an incredible concept because he came from the advertising world in the 50s, yeah. you know? So yeah. it was like very, very hardcore concept. Yeah. So I, I didn't learn traditional, I didn't learn this type of systemic design that like a Cranbrook would or, or where I learned kind of the storytelling, you know, how to, to apply design into to tell stories. And I guess you would say it's more visual language, but I could always draw really well. So I learned how to, I was really good at drawing, you know, um, letters and logos and I, uh, it became more of a system to, to, to look at how I solve problems. So it wasn't like it was design thinking. To me, that's how I solve problems. I don't try to think of an ad first. I think of when a problem comes up and I try to challenge people to think of different ways to solve the problem that aren't really an ad or a um, traditional in a traditional form. It's yeah. just it's solving a problem that may be a with a sculpture or with a you know, a different approach. Yeah. But it's a design thinking as a as a as a, a just an approach to. I think everything that I mean everything everything you see is design. You know, yeah. I mean it's not you can't get away from it. You know, it's a lot of bad design, but sure. it's like everything you see is designed in one way or another. How old were you when you got to Nike, and what were you designing there? Oh man, I, I was hired at the international group. It was a new group at the time. Gordon Thompson was there. Tinker Hatfield was developing all of his stuff. I mean, I'll talk. I'll say. I'll tell a little story about that. And then um, we were recruiting people from all over to Nike Design. No one wanted to come because they didn't. They were like, well, "Why would we go to this kind of startup shoe company? It had only been around for 10, 15, or twelve years." Right. Um, and it used to be kind of. You would design a get a uh, a request a hundred years of basketball, and I would design three posters for it, and they would make all three. They go, this one's going to NCAA, this one's going to coaches, and you know they all three would get really high high awards. You know, um, I remember Gordon had come over to me and said, "Hey, we we want to try something new with footwear." Tinker had I didn't know who Tinker was because yeah. Tinker has. A new shoe. We want you to. We want to try to do, develop the logo, the whole system as he develops the shoe. And so he comes over and it's just slab of rubber with straps all over. And he goes, "This is the Air Hirachi," and he's like, "And we need we need a kind of a mark." And I don't know what to do with it. Anything you want to do, just let's let's look at ideas. So I designed the Air Hirachi logo. And, which which for those yeah. who don't know was a. Uh, a pretty big deviation from what any other Nike had ever looked like, didn't have a swoosh on it, yeah. and was a pretty controversial shoe when it came out. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, I mean, because we, 
we just said the future. It was like it, the whole future was here, you yeah. know, with this footwear design. It's kind of the premise of everything, everything, colorway, everything, and um, materials. And we did a whole 360 package and it was really successful. And I remember we were, Gordon, myself, a couple others had shown a little film that we had shown to Dan and uh, to say, you know, how can we make this whole thing work together through the line? And Dan just looked at it and goes, we're not using that. And I remember thinking, man, they're just assholes. I'll never do an advertising. <laughs> so. um, did the Fab Five sort of informally adopt the Hirachi, or was that like a was that like a formal relationship? Because I feel like they were they were pretty integral to bringing that shoe sort of hard yeah. into pop culture. I don't know how it got in, but I'm sure the 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 marketing geniuses at Nike got it on yeah. their yeah got it on their feet somehow. But yeah, they they. They exploded it for sure. And it in 2018, there is still two rows dedicated to every Foot Locker and Foot Action for Hirachis to this day. You've made a lot of really famous commercials, but that's a different kind of legacy. Have you ever yeah. sort of envisioned a an alternate universe where you just stayed at Nike and kept designing things there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's weird. On one hand, as much as I love design, if you cut me open, I'm a designer. But on the other hand, I my attention span is not I can't deliberate over a typeface for a year. You know, it's like companies do do that. Apple, I was about I was offered a job from Steve Jobs at Apple, and I just said I can't. I had already started to work with Goodby, and it was to go back into design, and I couldn't. I couldn't get I couldn't get my head around that type of discipline again. Of yeah. having to think about it because it's a it's a it's a long process. I mean, they they those guys and in, in Nike designers too. They they take they go through a lot of cycles. And I was I was really wanting to do TV. I was wanting to do what applied to what I thought design was in different things, different mediums. So there's no way you're going to bring that Steve Jobs thing up and not expect <laughs> a follow up question. Just give me uh, one uh, minute on. The oh, trip man. to Palo Alto to meet Steve Jobs and what that was like. All right, so this is a pretty good one. So, <clears throat> I was um, it was up to do uh, to run graphic design. There was a person there that lasted not long, and it was to replace them and to work semi not equal to Johnny Ives, but like across on the other side. Yeah, um, they ended up hiring the right person. They they. They did it from within. Um, I think um, he's pretty famous in the Apple culture, Hiroki. But sure. But um, I was there and I met him, and he had 45 minutes, and we ended up staying an hour and a half. And I just remember he. We just talked about family because he was he was adopted, I was adopted, and we have four four kids, and we just got into talking about life more than anything else towards yeah. the end. Um, they offered me the job, and I didn't take it, but. Um, Later that day, I was seeing, getting toured, and they go, well, this is the lab, you know, with the product. I go, can I get in there? So they said, we're not supposed to, you know, no, no one can go in. But Johnny got me in. He goes, seriously, if Steve comes, we got to shove you in a closet because you can't be here. Right. So Steve comes in, they shoved me in a closet, and I was there for like an hour and a half in a coat closet. And so <laughs> they're yeah. like, "Look, adopted four kids, all great. He's still gonna probably have you murdered. Oh if, yeah, if totally. he sees you in here. No, they, but they're they're hardcore about that. You know, I mean, yeah. they don't let. It's like the eye scans to get in everything. You spent eight years at um, Wyden mm -hmm. Amsterdam. Did you ever get a chance to 
um, bring back up that memory to Dan Wyden of him rejecting the Hirachi logo? No, I just figured I and it crossed my mind many times. Uh, I just thought, no, he he won't remember it. So yeah. what made working at Wyden Amsterdam so special? And it, is, mm. would that answer be different than working at Wyden Portland, or is the culture so powerful that maybe it's yeah. what makes it special is not all that different from office to office? I think every office is different, yeah. and I think that but they share the same DNA about you know the work. The work is the most important thing, and it comes first. And um, for me, you know, I remember when Jelly, the first tour, I went at the late 90s, and I came back for five years, and I went back as the ECD or as a partner of one of the three um, managing directors there, uh, managing partners in the, in the office. But what always, each each time made it made it the same. And it's not that I would never, I ever, never would have gone to Portland or anything, but the when I went to, when I went to Amsterdam... Because at the time, um, the internet wasn't going, social media wasn't around, so it was like it was really about visual language that crossed all the borders and waters, and that had to be a really strong element of the storytelling. So it was high concept. The writing was there, but it was it was in a different way. You know, we had to tell mm-hmm. it through the concept, and if if we had to write through the concept, and if it was heavy writing, it was it was a unique for a country. It wasn't for all of Europe or Pan-Asia, which right. most of our work was. So what came out, the output was amazing street art, amazing posters, amazing, just cool films, and right. you know, of just, yeah. Yeah, and speaking of cool films, towards the end of yeah. that eight-year run, you were part of the team that did Write the Future, which, yeah. you know, still goes down as probably one of, the, one of the 10 greatest ads ever made. Um, and any advertising person who looks at that, I mean, they look at it with such reverence for a number of reasons, but one of them is just like, what did this production look like? You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of, there's so many players, there's so many setups and scenarios all yeah. over the world. Um, what are sort of, what are your mm. memories of production of Write the Future? <clears throat> My, man, that thing, that started off as a, um, um, first of all, so you get three years kind of out. So it's like you're two and a half, three years to work. And it started with a lot of local and regional campaigns of, be the difference, make the difference, and um, it evolved. And as it started to evolve, we actually had a lot of that ideation of the the change of play up and down the field, almost like an obstacle obstacle course of uh, of changing destinies. You know, there was a very um, we pushed that for some other work earlier, and we brought it back, but with a new context. So it was. Um, London had a lot to do with it. The team in Amsterdam did. And it really wasn't until, I mean, it started off as like, I don't know if I can say, but it was 7 million and it ended up being like 26 million. But it's like typical Nike. It was like, oh, we got to get Homer. Oh, now we got to get, you know, it was like one thing kept outdoing the other. Right. Um, and they also they also leveraged everything. So every every player story in it became its own content its own social yeah. channel so it was like um you know it was and i'm sure they got every penny back for it you know because yeah. it was the year it killed everything yeah and then yeah. a couple years later your cco at shiat and I, I assume part of the appeal for them hiring you is you know hey yeah. among other things this is right the future guy we've got a big adidas world cup spot coming up yeah. i'm wondering um when you're in those situations, what are your feelings on handling the pressure of feeling like sort of anything less than living up to or exceeding the piece of work from your past would be considered failure? Maybe by yeah. some outside, maybe by you inside, but sort of you feel like you're competing against yourself. 
Oh, well, there's, there was no doubt. I mean, that was like the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest thing that was pink elephant in the room. Right. Was it that. felt like that's what they were hiring you for. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, even when we started working on the World Cup, that was, you know, I had to really watch that. I couldn't bring it into the room um, with, the, with the team. We actually had an amazing idea that got killed by the president. And it would have, in my opinion, humble opinion, it would have been epic. It would have been at that level. And, but it had to do with a death, but this was in a retro way, and it was an amazing, amazing, a death of one of their star players, Messi. Right. And the team who did it was like, you know, it was bought and then unbought at the very end. I remember Lee was just, Lee was on the phone with everyone at Adidas. Like, it was crazy. But it was, it was, one, of, it was one of those ones where it's like, Pop it's champagne. it's yeah. sold, champagne. Hey, yeah. um, just a quick note from the client. It's not a huge deal. Um, they they want to keep everything the same. They just want to change one small thing. They want to um, they want to not kill Messi. In it. So we just got to do the same concept. No dead Messi. That's right. It's, like, it's, it's not a small thing. You just changed it. You ruined it. Um, well, uh, you were, you've been a Goodby. You've been at Wyden. You've been at Martin Agency. Shiat, now Translation. Um, in the NFL, there's a coaching tree, you know, where mm. basically all coaches can trace their lineage back to Bill Walsh or Paul Brown. Um, I'd like to name some people on your coaching tree, mm. and you can just tell me, like, you know, the first thing that comes to mind or something that person may have taught you. Okay. Are you down for that game? Sure. Okay. Jeff Goodby. Ah. Uh, humor. Yeah. Clever wit. How about Dan Wyden? Oh, man. Philosophy for work and life. Did you get a chance to work with him pretty closely at certain points of your of your tenure at Wyden? Um, quite a bit on on Coca Cola and World Cup, and just actually just helping you know, he, you know. I actually probably would say Dan mentor because I mean he's he he him and his culture taught me how to to be manage creative, yeah. or, you know, at least through my own way of doing it. Yeah. With with Bogusky, it was this way, and I wonder if it was with Dan. I think from the outside looking in, it feels like these guys are like sort of a wizard at the top of a hill. Yeah. Um, but you don't know exactly what they do until you work with them. And at least for Alex, it was like, well, what he does is like we sit in your office and like we rewrite scripts together and we re rewrite lines together, and it can be pretty pretty monotonous. And you really sort of get into the the yeah. detail and and muck and craft of it. Yeah. Was Dan the same way? Was Dan a guy who'd be rewriting totally. lines with you in the office? Absolutely. I remember when we were, um, we had uh, our Coca-Cola campaign globally was the Coke side of life. It was something different in um, in the US and we we're trying to get to one line. And we would, we would sit and we went to like three or 400 lines, just the whole network came through, you know, with them. But we would sit, I remember sitting out in his front of his office with a team, just going back and forth, you know. And finally, I mean, Open Happiness was bought because it was a new CEO that wanted his own tagline. He didn't want to change the work or his right. agencies. He wanted a new tagline yeah. that we did for everything. So Open Happiness was born out of it. But, yeah, he would sit and riff with us on that. And, and um, you know, one of, the, one of the coolest things I ever heard Dan say is, like, don't, you know, just just don't ever tell another team, a team that's working for you, you would do this or this is what you would do. Because the moment you do, it becomes yours. Right. And it's not about you. And it's about, you know, say you're confused. Say, you know, hey, you're saying this, the strategy is this. You're visually doing it this way. But narratively, you know, you're saying this. Which one is it? Pick one and, and make it, you know, see if that works and this works. But don't do all of them. You're confusing confusing me. Well, you start out as a creative and if you're lucky enough to get promoted, it's probably because, you know, you brought forth 
ideas that got sold and got made. Um, and then you get, you know, you get elevated to a certain position where you're managing other people and there's not really a, the skills that are required to manage maybe have nothing to do with the reason you were promoted. Um, and so it can be a difficult transition yeah. to not have bias toward your idea and to like allow a team to just right. sort of go off and run and play and surprise you. I mean, I found that to be really difficult. Was that a, did that take some time for you to, to, for, to you to, for you to grasp as well? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I mean, the way it works there, I mean, at least the way it worked then for for us and me and everyone is that if we wanted to do something, we'd have to go do it, you know? I mean, right. so I remember um, Kling and I doing a couple of things together, you know? Um, but we wouldn't go in and, and carve off someone else's pie, you know, because it's yeah. like it just was – it was just a real respect thing there, you know? And it was about the work being – more important than, I mean, I remember them saying, like, when you're here, the work comes first. It's not about your wife, your dog, your this, your that. When you go home, it's all that. When it's here, it's about the work, and it's not about what you you want over someone else. You know, whatever's the best idea will win. Yeah. Continuing down the coaching tree, mm. you were at you were at Shiat for 18 months. Does Lee Cloud belong on your coaching tree? Oh, for sure. I that his is simplicity, 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 and that's on the walls in Apple, and it's it's definitely. Lee. Lee's yeah. about keeping it just real simple. Yeah. That's a good one. Mm. You actually realize when you're like promoted to certain roles or you go into these big companies. Yeah. The idea is like, believe me, like they have 10 different versions of brand guidelines and brand yeah. vision and all of these sort of like, um, you know, statements that, that, that like cancel each other out. And the job is probably more to, um, like, hack away at the weeds until the only thing that's left is what's essential Yeah, versus like adding more shit to it, you know? Um, and then the last person on the coaching tree would be Steve Stout. Oh man. Conviction. I mean, the man's full of it and believing in something. Are those two different thoughts? Conviction and the man's full of it? (laughs) No, the man's full of conviction. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay. (laughs) Oh man. Um, yeah. Conviction. I mean, we, that, you know, believing in something and just, putting everything out to go for it. You know? Does he stay close to the work? He stays. He and I stay close to the work, and um, I, he always has something really great to add to it, you know? But um, he and I stay close. He's not in the shop, if you will, or yeah. the kitchen, but, yeah, he's uh, he's definitely a, a component of it. Sometimes it's great when you have a partner who shares your taste, and sometimes it's great to have a partner who has very different tastes than yeah. you. How would you describe you and Steve in that mm. regard in terms of creative taste? Steve, Steve and I are really similar in taste. I mean, it, it's 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 odd, you know. I mean, there's there are things that are that I've learned from him, you know, just because I think he sees things through a different cultural lens uh, and through music a lot. Yeah. Um, where he's obviously helped a lot, or, you know, or music and adding to a concept through music and making things better, you know. Um, and you know, he and I have, he and I have around the work great relationship you know i can say i don't agree he can say this is not good enough and and we go back and forth till we get the absolute best it can be yeah so well i would think with a guy like that as important as any other skill when he hires someone in your position as someone who has not only the courage but um the the background um and the and the track record to be able to speak truth to power i'm sure he's yeah he's got enough people around him who will agree with him he needs people who who can be honest with him yeah, and then, you know he. Um, I have a, I have a ton of respect for him because he got he really 
he really moved out, moved aside, and let me run with the work. And yeah. and he's involved, but it's a you know we have it's it's um you know I couldn't I couldn't do thing a lot of the things that have been done there creatively without him. There's, yeah. there's just no doubt. You well, know? as an outsider looking in, I was going to say that like at so many agencies and even at great agencies, mm -hmm. you brought up that Adidas uh, idea that that died. There are so many perfectly good reasons why great work never sees the light of days, yeah. light of day, and there's so many perfectly good excuses why great work doesn't see the light of day. And as an outsider looking in, Steve seems like someone who just sort of doesn't accept those answers and finds a way to get shit done. Hundred percent. Right? I mean, he'll be the first one to say, "Look, let's get on the phone. Let me call him. Let me do this." And it's like, right. and he pushes for it every time. Right. Um, you've been a translation mm -hmm. now for four years. Mm -hmm. um, originally a multicultural agency, now a general market agency. Um, but sometimes you create opportunities by starting as a multicultural agency um, and then figuring out how to sort of expand your remit with a brand. Yeah. When you take on something that's sort of categorized as general versus something that's categorized as multicultural, does the agency approach those mm. opportunities differently? Or at the end of the yeah. day, is like, is a simple human truth a simple human truth? It's a simple human truth. And I, it's funny because I think Steve would probably have a different opinion about how he started because mm -hmm. he actually started from a pop cultural truth right. as opposed as opposed to a multicultural. In fact, I think I've, he he would tell you himself, but I think that that was that's been the go-to thing to to kind of think or maybe the um, perception is, yeah. you know, but it's but the reality is that you know his philosophy and his approach is you know he wrote a book called Tanning of America and, yeah. and it's uh it's all about that it's just about getting getting the insight right culturally and yeah. where it comes from through music art street and whether that's a african american influence or hispanic or wherever it comes from that that's at the root of it not you yeah. know the human truth of it is at the root of it, at the uh, at the root of the idea, okay. not the skin color or or yeah. where they come from. It's a great point. Um, the industry probably initially called it a multicultural agency because yeah. they didn't know what else to call it, and yeah. that was a box that existed. But Steve, probably right from the onset, saw it a very different way, and that's why the agency yeah. is where it is. Yeah. Um, so this is a very transient business. Part of the challenge is recruiting and finding great talent. Mm. Another difficult challenge is keeping great talent after a team has made one or two great things. Mm. Um, this is a tough question. You had three CCO positions in five years. What do you say to a creative team that wants to piece maybe a little bit too early? Or do you say anything? <laughs> oh, man. You mean by a team, a creative team that wants to jump up to a CCO level? No, to oh. a creative team that makes a great piece of work mm. and comes up and goes, John, man, this was awesome. And thank you for giving us this opportunity oh, right bye. out of school. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. as a result, we can make 10 extra grand and get a get a, um, yeah. a title bump. So we're leaving now. Oh, man. The temptation is always to keep them, to yeah. try to fight to keep them. If It's funny, maybe because I feel like I'm the Forrest Gump of this industry now and I'm looking at it and I have kids and I look look at it and go well where they are maturity wise you know is like why are they making that decision so I try to weigh that into it there's not a there's not a patent answer I would have you know I mean I think that if they're making if someone comes to me and says look I'm going to WK I just go good luck you know this is why I learned from them I hope you do whatever whatever right but if someone's doing it for money I, it's just kind of one of those things that just go well 
talk to you in a year, you know? Right. And it's because it's like, I know what that path's going to be, unless it's a creative company that's giving them more money. But it's, right. you know, they're usually 50-50, they're going to make the wrong decision for the wrong reason. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, that, that, allure, that appeal and that allure is there. But you're right, if it feels yeah. like it's like, to, especially early in your career, you know, a $10,000 increase can feel life-changing. You no longer have to worry about getting the guacamole at Chipotle, yeah. you know? Yeah, oh, I, I, I chased, you know, the CD title. I want to be yeah. a CD, I want to be a CD. I didn't know why. I just wanted to be a CD. Yeah. And when I went into the Goodby culture, it, di- it didn't matter what I was because we were just making amazing stuff. We were yeah. making incredible things that were like, you know... I mean, we were getting to work with Gursky, you know, Andres Gursky, yeah. the, the most in Fincher and all these incredible, incredible artists um, and making really cool shit, you know? And it was like, I didn't care what I was called at that yeah. point. The title know? thing is hard and the titles are so diluted and, and inflated now. So, I mean, a CD at one agency can mean something incredibly different than at another agency. I think when I started at Crispin, Alex was the ECD. And then when I left, I was one of eight ECDs. Right. And part of it is like, it's a great way to get people to stick around. You're right. You sort of want it and you don't know yeah. why you, well, we know why we want it. You want it so you can, you yeah. know, tell your mom or tell your brother or tell your friends <laughs> right. that that's what you are. It sounds better. Um, but it means such a different thing. Yeah. Um, depending on where you are and you're right. It's like at the end of the day, like if I'm making great work and I'm being compensated fairly and I'm with smart people, like call me asshole. Yeah. You know? Right. So. But I'm sure you guys, you know, earn, earn the titles because the amount of work in the, crazy amazing cool work that was coming out yeah when you were there was it was phenomenal on the one hand yes on the other hand there is something i think there is something kind of romantic i guess it's easy to say in hindsight about like a structure where there's not that many titles i just feel like now there's like the junior the regular the senior the junior acd the regular and it's like this is you know you feel like you're buying some like cup of coffee at a at a really ill-conceived coffee shop or something (laughs) if you take away the titles you have to put something else in right for me, the, the something else in is is true kind of uh, apprenticeship. It's real, true right. um, nurturing talent, and that takes a lot of fucking sweat. Yeah, I mean, by people like who've been there, you know, yeah. it takes a lot of work. You know, and it takes a lot of really care about it too. Like you got to really care about that person because they want it. You know, you want to help them, yeah. but that's rare. I think. You Do know? you think? I mean, you obviously play a mentorship role mm-hmm. to a lot of creatives who work for you. Are you thinking about that relationship while you work with them? Mm. Or does it work more like, look, we don't have a lot of time to be thinking about like where mm. we stand in our mentor-mentee relationship. Let's just keep yeah. doing work. And then like in six years, we can kind of figure out what this really all was. No, I mean, I, sometimes it sometimes it's right in, my, in front of my head. You know, like I know this person really is trying to learn. Right. And I will really give a lot more to that, to that person as long as they're doing the work. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes it's just let's get it done, you know. Um, but the people that are just trying to go through it for salary, you know, I mean, they're usually not people we want around us anyway. Right. You know, yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. But, um, I, but I think the talent pool is getting really small. You do? Oh, yeah. I think it's hard. I think it's hard to find really great, great conceptual Thinkers with words, pictures, technology, and, you know, a lot of people jump to execution now these days instead of going straight to, like, let's get a great, big, cool, simple idea first. What do you make of that? Do you think there's just more demands on young creatives to have more skills sooner or 
Are people lazier? I mean, yeah. I think it's. I think it's probably. A, look, I'm no expert, but I think it's probably a lot of schools. I think it's a lot of the industry itself is in flux. I think that there's a lot of more canvases versus more artists sitting down thinking before they apply something to the canvas. Yeah. So they're just like whacking at canvases, you know, and trying to solve something executionally first, um, as, a, as opposed to sitting down and thinking. And I think they're also teachers, you know, mentors that are in these places um, uh, of power where they can actually help creative. They're not really wanting to make them better as much as they are just to get stuff out the door yeah. a lot. Yeah, and and we all want to create original work, and technology mm. can be a conduit to really interesting original work. But as a result of that, I do think you also see a lot of like technology posing mm. as ideas. And that's probably you've you've probably said it better than me. But that's exactly kind of probably you've pinpointed it. Um, being in senior roles means mm. taking on certain responsibilities that have nothing to do with the part of the job that you got into this for in the first place. What's an aspect of management that you enjoy more than maybe you would have thought if I asked you 10 years ago? Mm. I mean, I think, I think the building of building of a model or trying a new model, um, to try something new. I mean, you, you know, we used to hear in this industry a lot, like, um, this is something you haven't seen before. And truly it was something you haven't seen before. Cause it was pulling a new director technique to apply to a story. And then, um, um, yeah, do the question one more time. Sure. It was just about, um, Oh, models. Yeah. Well, no, it's about management. It's yeah, about, if I was going to ask management. you 10 years ago, like what's a thing about the management, mm. um, the, the management role unrelated to the creative role right. that, you know, that you wouldn't have expected that you enjoy. So it is experimenting with new models to get to new ideas. So it's like pulling in, you know, an audience strategist with a creative and just try to do hybrid teams yeah. to get to a problem, you know, and not having to be able to build a culture that's not with walls or corridors and just to, to keep it. It's a freedom within a framework, you know, right. but that requires equal leaders around your team, you know, at executive level to to want to do the same thing. Are you someone who has like a well-defined creative process that you try to adhere to pretty strictly or do you sort of take on challenges and go like we know where we want to get and we can get there a bunch of different ways and let's not let's not feel too handcuffed by process i'm not handcuffed by process i mean i, I definitely my own way i don't inf you know afflict on anyone else you know which is i would do the old traditional scrapbook let's tell the story let's blow a wall up with visuals words and pictures and and you know, and get you make you cry or make you feel something, and let's pull a story out of it. Now, my way is not the only way. There's a lot of ways. I think the most important thing, absolutely, is what is the big idea every time. Right. What is the concept that like that is going to make people feel something? And you look, even if it's a visual, you can you can tell someone what that is. You know, yeah. um, and if you can't give me a picture or one line, what it is, then then we have to keep going. When you're reviewing work, mm -hmm. how do you know it mm -hmm. when you see it? I mean, is it a, can people see it on your face? Do you instantly go to an optimistic place? Do you instantly go to a focused place? How do you, what do you feel when you see an idea I'm, that's that's a big idea? I'm pretty transparent, I think. I, <laughs> I think I probably, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a um, pretty animated, right. you know? Yeah, I get pretty excited. 
Yeah, and you're not doing. Yeah. Are you doing that for the benefit of the people in the room, or it's just it's just no, what your I'm body? Really, it's just I'm what your really body excited. wants to do. Yeah, yeah. Yo, yesterday it happened too. I mean, it was a crazy thing we're doing as a pro bono with one of our clients. Not a pro bono, but a a um, proactive idea. And yeah. and I I got super pumped, you know, because they had cracked it, you know. Yeah, I think I as, cre- as creative leaders though, we do that because it's what comes naturally. Yeah. But when you see the result of it, which is like, yeah, we work in an industry where we hear no a lot, we experience failure a yeah. lot. And people are looking to you for cues. Yeah. And like if that excitement, if you can be the source of excitement that people yeah. can draft off of for 15 minutes or for a day, yeah. you know, like it will get you to the next thing. Yeah. So. And I always try to tell people like if I have something critical to say, I don't always, I'm not perfect by any means, but like if there's a, if it's not working on a lot of, in a lot of um, um, aesthetics, words, pictures, whatever, um, I always try to come back and, and not say something positive, but say, but this is working. Think about this or think about that yeah. in a way that's not giving an idea away or, or leading the witness too much, but it is um, finding s- some positives or some, some um, something good about the, what they're doing. Just give them something, something, something to keep working on. Yeah, yeah, something. And if it has to be like, hey, we didn't get it, like, you know, let's talk about what we need to get there, you know? Like, do we need to go do more research or whatever it is? Is the brief broken, you know? Would your creatives accuse you of either being too hard on them or too soft on them? I think I'm pretty hard. Yeah. I think they would say I'm maybe... I used to be like a really lead strong steel hammer probably, but I'm probably more of a velvet hammer now. Yeah. You know? Did the kids, did having kids add to the velvetiness or did it just, was it just over time you realized <laughs> like you just don't want to be as mean? Yeah. I think it's just beat, them just beat up. <laughs> yeah. That'll do it. Um, well, I mean, like in any job yeah. to that point, we're liable to experience yeah. crisis of confidence. You know, we experience mm. failure. It's part of the job. Um, but mm. employees are taking cues from you. Um, and I almost equate it to like the flight attendant during turbulence. Like sh- if she seems calm, then I guess I can be calm. Yeah. Um, if and when you experience crisis of confidence, do you try not to let those around you see it? Or is it okay for your employees to sort of see your vulnerability when you're feeling it? Why is it a good question? Thanks, man. Hey, that's good. Yeah. Uh, I think that I'm... I try to let my vulnerability or being vulnerable, <clears throat> being v- vulnerable, yeah. like out in the open. I mean, I, you're I, vulnerable I, right now. Yeah, just totally. answering this, yeah. Yeah, um, I can't even say the word. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'm pretty. Um, I think people see that. I think that I have to also really watch myself because I'm, I'm very emotional. I mean, I can get, I can actually let let it go too far you know and it's like you know the you know everyone has questions everything or else you know we wouldn't be creative you know it's like if we weren't curious or weren't affected by our surroundings or our you know we all want positive reinforcement and we want to get some w's instead of just the l's all the time you know in that column and it's like you know it's a it's a trying time right now but i do think that um in the industry but i do think that um it's good to just to be emotional about things yeah. when it's the right, the right way. You, you seem to me like sort of an artist at heart and it seems maybe this is just for me personally and not everybody, but it seems to me that, um, 
more and more in our in our industry to sell work requires an ability for creative people to have sort of a fluency in speaking business language. Yeah. First of all, do you, do you experience that? And are you <laughs> so, good at that? So you hit my insecurity because I am, for me, it's like I, I am more of a, I look at world, I look at solving problems always through our history or through different, different ways. I, I paint, I draw. I mean, I, I probably am as crazy and as emotionally disturbed as an artist, but that's the way I've always kind of approached everything in my life, you know? Yeah. And, and the whole business side, you're like, I can sit down and, and if I try to fake that I know business, it, it comes off fake. So yeah. I just, you know, one thing I did learn from Dan is just just talk from the heart, you know? I mean, this is a great story. This, some, this about sums it up. We're sitting down to pitch the Coke work for the first time from Amsterdam. Open we, happiness. Open, yeah. Yeah, it was, well, it was the Coke style life at the time, but then it turned to open happiness. Yeah. It was when the bottle icon and all the happiness factory and all that work was in there, right? Yeah. And we're there, and Neville Drisdell, who's a famous icon in the Coke world as far as CEOs, he was there, Esther Lee, Mark Matu, David Butler, Lore, Al Mosley, like Dan. And so I remember they asked, they said, well, Dan, do you want to start, you know, and open up anything? And I remember he kind of fumbled with the paper and he said, oh, I'm... I'm really kind of kind of nervous. And then I remember Neville goes, so are we. And then it was like, boom, off to the right. We, there was no setup. It was just like, we just got right into it and went, went, went after it. It was like no business talk. It was no special kind of monologues. And it was just like someone being vulnerable and Dan being honest. Yeah. That's about clients too. Not all clients are like that. Yeah. And- and when he, True. when a guy like that who has that kind of stature in the room puts that out there, yeah, yeah, the truth is he's got a uh, a reputation that precedes him in the room. Where unlike most of us, you know, I'm I'm in a room with a client trying to not sound dumb. But when you're with Dan Wyden and you work a Coke, you're probably worried about the same thing on the client side that he's worried about, that the rest of us are worried about on the agency side. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Do you still get nervous before client meetings? Oh yeah, sometimes. Yeah. 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 Do you have to pep talk yourself or like run psychological psych outs on yourself when you walk in? Pretty meetings? much. I just have to go, look, this is not about me. It's about the work. You yeah. Know? yeah. Why am I nervous? Like, you know, they've done all the work. I've been the coach and tried to help them get there. And, you know, I got to go win it for them, not me. I spoke with this um, public speaking coach one time, just this random conversation. And I said, you know, I get I get nervous before meetings. He goes, well, what happens? I go, you know, my feet get really cold and my hands get really sweaty. And he goes, do you normally have good meetings? I go, well, yeah, more often than not, the meetings go well. He goes, so when your feet get cold and your hands get sweaty, just know that your body is signaling to yourself that something really good's about to happen. Nice. It's like, God, we just we have to we have one. to play so many tricks on ourselves That's totally, just to right? have a conversation. Um, Doggone it, I'm good enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, look, I mean, ideas are only as good as our ability to sell them. Yep. Um, would you describe yourself as a good salesman? Um, I would describe myself as a good salesman when it comes to the work, for sure. Yeah. You know, just absolutely having a strong belief and a point of view and a conviction about what it is, yeah. Um, Part of our job's failure. Mm. We talked about that a little bit. Yep. Um, you've worked at some different places. You've had a variety of different mentors. 
through that experience, what's your relationship with failure? How do you sort of mm. view failure um, kind of along your journey? Because it's inevitable yeah. and we, yeah. we're going to hear no's and work's going to die. Yeah. And um, you have young creatives who are looking to you for cues and they haven't experienced it to the degree or with the depth that yeah. you have just by virtue of the experiences you've had. So Yeah, I think I've had the last spot in the Super Bowl, you know, judged to the first spot. You know? <laughs> right. So it's like in there, anywhere in between. So it's like, you know, yeah, I mean... Um, God, there's so many failures. I mean, there's, I mean, there's way more failures than I can, than the wins. That's yeah. how I look at it, you know. And it's only a f failure. I mean, I used to beat myself up really bad about it. I mean, I was a real perfectionist, and I would take it out on others. And and I still am a perfectionist, but like if I don't learn from now, failure with management or failure with talent, and helping nurture or help the, you know what we're trying to do from a, from a business point of view, yeah. then if I don't look at it and see what, what I can look, we can learn from it and, and improve on it, then it really is a failure, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's something like a cliche, but it's true. No, I mean, I wonder to what degree it's just like, yeah, hey, I had the last spot in the Super Bowl, and like, that was a decade ago, and here I am. I'm like, you just yeah. keep going, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope, mean, I, yeah. The, the thing that I always think that, and it goes back to, you know, confidence and failure. It's like, yeah, you know, it's like, I, I know one thing and do one thing, but I can do it a lot of different ways. But it's like in this day and time, the world is changing so fast. I always like every day I wake up and go, man, you're a loser. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> this thing. You do that too? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, man, this is like crazy. You're, you're like a dinosaur. Like you're like this, you know, like, like a, yeah, like just a past history, like that old that 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 world you know i wonder if subconsciously the reason i started this podcast is just to get the people <laughs> i admire most in the industry to admit that they feel that way too oh so my I'm god every day yeah uh, every day yeah um you said that you can be kind of maniacal mm. as a perfectionist um how do you know when something is done uh can you mm. tinker can you tinker to your detriment oh for sure i mean I'm gonna steal this from from one of my design teachers. Like the day I design something perfect, I'll quit. You know, it's just never, it's never gonna be that way. You know, and I think probably every designer will say that. You know, right? I think that's also too what makes it like design is to to make something last for years or forever. You know, advertising is to get a response and slow the process down to the trash can. Right. You know, right. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Never heard it described that way before. Yeah, but it's kind of that, you know, you're trying to stop someone and disrupt them to, to give them a message. But design is, so that perfectionism probably comes from my design thinking, you know. Yeah. And when I apply it to kind of what we're doing, what we do now, and it's a mixed media of everything, right? It's like, it, it can get in the way, you know. Yeah. And I have to, like, I have to, I've got tools now that I do and, you know, um, try to stop it. But yeah, as a CCO at any given time, you've got a client that's going really, really good. Mm. And you've got a client that's maybe not going so good. Um, and you might go from the meeting where the client's going really good yeah. at 11. And then you walk into the meeting right next door in your office at, at 12 with a whole other group of people who are yeah. experiencing a whole other set of problems. Just can you talk a little bit about how you mm. kind of like modulate your emotions throughout the day because the people that you're meeting with are all like in very different emotional spaces depending on yeah. who they're working with and what they're working on. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, it 
it's like a it's like a nut house. I mean, it's like because it is like it, you've described it perfectly. Yeah. It's like one room's really happy. This room, they're running their heads in the wall, you know, because of of stuff going on, right. you know, and it's. I just have to be as calm as I can and just help just get them to calm down. Because if I'm crazy, which I could very well start the crazy in the room, right. then then that does no no one any good, you know? Right. So it's, you know, and I have a lot of really good people around that help me try to stay calm and solve problems. Right. But it is like it some, it's some days at the end of the day, I just feel so fucking tired yeah. i mean you're just because you're just beaten up you're just like you're solving one thing after another it just feels like a job of you know altruism you know it's actually a funny phenomenon happens where i feel like on the rare days where i leave and i don't feel that yeah i feel like i must have like i must have wasted the day you know <laughs> right like I, I must have not filled my day with right. enough with enough problem solving conflict and right. like overcoming adversity is like oh man that was that must have been a lazy day because i don't feel like yeah like i've been like I'm a speed bag today. Like you've been, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Uh, but the calm thing is interesting, and that goes back to you described the mentorship of Dan Wyden, and it sounds like you know that's a lesson you learned from him. Is like there's just going to be very few scenarios where, yeah, where where like you're going to help by being more more discombobulated or angry or like animated than what's already happening. It doesn't yeah. mean it does, doesn't mean it's not never useful. It's just right. it's usually not the, right. the best way, but. Well, I try to, I mean, it goes back to the emotion of trying to, you know, I try to channel excitement or um, not harsh, but um, make a point to make a point, you know, and to use it as a tool. And it's like, you know, there's, there's times when you have to be a lot harder on, on people or things or the idea on the idea and the people are just they're the tools doing it. I mean, it's channeled through them, you know, it's like, but it's the idea has to be, has to, if, it, if it's about the idea always in the work, I think you can have any emotion you want. That's my own opinion, yeah. you know, but when it, once it crosses a line, it becomes personal. Right. When it goes, you did this, then it becomes a violation, you know, right. to me. Then it, you turn into your junior college basketball coach. That's exactly, throwing the chairs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, in the last, let's say five years, yeah. is there anything that you've gotten better at saying no to? Oh man. Mm. I I really won't work on a brand I really don't believe ethically if it's right or wrong, you know. Mm. I, I I won't do it. I won't I I also won't say it shouldn't be in our building. I just won't want to work on it. Interesting. That's yeah. a hard one for a lot of creatives and especially a lot of like younger creatives who yeah. Um, you know, you, you'll meet creatives who are like, well, I only want to work on cause-based advertising. Right. And you're like, cool. There's yeah. a few places that do that, but in large part, that's not really the job. Right. And, um, and it's a, it's different for every person, but it's a, it's yeah. a tricky journey where you go like, well, you know, this company, I don't agree with yeah. all of their ethics, but I could sort of explain away why I would feel good about giving them my best ideas. And right. well, you're like, you know, where do you draw that line? And it's yeah. really tough for people. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you even said that because I feel like even like five or 10 years ago, a lot of creatives, a lot of people would, wouldn't even sort of admit that, you know, and I, like we're, we're allowed yeah. to talk about it more. Yeah. Um, um, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, is there anything mm-hmm. you do? Is there any unusual habit you have or sort of trick you pull on yourself to get yourself back to 
to equal? <laughs> I, uh, I have to exercise a lot. I mean, I, that's yeah. the one thing. Is if I if I get off on a routine, it can get, it can, it can be ugly. Yeah. You know, my mood uh, or my demeanor. You know, but um, morning or night? Uh, morning. Yeah. Yeah. Best in the morning. Yeah. But I mean, I, I do. I started to meditate more. Yeah. You know, I, I meditate now, and it helps a lot. Yeah, that's a good good thing i've asked guests do you meditate and or are you annoyed <laughs> with yourself that you don't meditate because i think there's a lot of yeah. people who intend on meditating we listen to different shows and podcasts where the great titans of industry all will point to meditation as this powerful tool and then like yeah. we all start and stop with it so you're like <laughs> oh I it's, do it. it's sticking with you oh right. yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah every day uh i would say four times a week that's pretty damn good also yeah. in the morning yeah it has, it has to be in the morning and if it's a really bad day, I'll do it at night, you know? Yeah. Is there any, can you put your finger yeah. on how it benefits you professionally? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it absolutely, I mean, it's weird. I don't know whether, it's these voice, the voice in my head, I wake up every day right. and it's in my voice and it, it, it has nothing good to say. <laughs> it never says, hey, this is going to be a great day. You're going to go sell some great work, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're going to be able to go do some art and whatever. No, it always, it's the opposite. It's the negative thing. So if I meditate and I really do it, it doesn't take long now. You know, it's like five to ten minutes. Right. Then it calms it. It just, it just, I'm, I'm calm. And then at least I get a head start on the day. So that's. It that's, shuts that guy up for a, yeah, for a couple minutes at for least. a little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, I like to end with. The same two questions. Yeah. Um, one is, in a presentation of your work to a client, mm. what is the most horrifying response you ever got to something you presented? Oh, man. John Norman has never gotten a bad response no, in a I meeting. Have. No, I have. There was, um, I won't say the client, but there was, it wasn't that it was a bad response because it was, the work was good or bad. Yeah. It was that they were being incredibly disrespectful. Incredible. Like, yeah. and my partner and I had the teams all around the table. Their eyes were bleeding, you know, from this work. Some some of the best work that we had done at that time at in Amsterdam on the wall. And and I remember the clients finally got to the table, right? We met them in a hotel in Paris and they said they looked around and goes, Oh, so what are we here for? And it was like the mo you could have like I mean, and people just started like literally crying, you know, and it was it was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, the other one was that we had actually sold in a huge, huge campaign we worked on for nine months. And the client took it from us and gave it to another, I won't say their name, competitive company at the time. Yeah. And I remember grown men crying from it. Yeah. It was terrible. It was, it was, and it was all political. It was all political. So the whole thing was uh, politics. Well, you look back and work comes and work goes. Yeah. But... And the thing that you appreciate is that you were, yeah. at least for some chapter Great of your stories. career. Well, and you're, yeah. and you're around people who care that yeah. much about the same thing. I yeah. Mean, that's like, that's but, the thing you value later on, I guess. Yeah. 
But those are the worst responses or the worst yeah. reactions, you know. And it was, um, you know, aside from when you know if you're if you're into something, you're presenting something. If you're not feeling good about it, it shows, you know. Sure. Um, and if those were bad because that work was amazing, you right. know. And it, and it's I can accept it if the work is not there, right. and they go, "This is shit," you know, guys. You know, this is not. It's off. It's off the inside. And I go, "Yeah, okay, you're right. We're gonna go back and give us, you know, a few more days." Right. I'm fine with that, but like when when it's actually on the mark, and then you're treated in a very disrespectful way, it's it's hard. Right. Yeah. You have. Yeah, it's hard. You have one view of how this is gonna go, and yeah. then you walk out of that thing 45 minutes later, and it's gone quite a bit differently. And it's and it's yeah. bad. Like the the second one, you know, and it was for Nike. It's like when you when when you have the very top person at Nike and his and the whole crew. In and they're saying, way to go, Wyden, you guys have done it again. It's going to do something like no one's ever seen. And then two weeks later, it's ripped from you for like, has nothing to do with the work or for the people doing it. It's bad, you yeah. know, it was like, a, it was, yeah. And the final question, okay. and you may have answered this one right. uh, earlier in the conversation. So if so, you can just maybe give us a little more color <laughs> on it if you're comfortable right. with it, which is <clears throat> the one that got away. What is that one idea, that one mm. spot, that one thing that just will always have apartment space in your heart? You couldn't sell it for whatever reason, but it right. just it stays with you. Oh, that was the the Messi's funeral. Is that the one for oh, you? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, for sure. I mean... We it it was truly one of those things where it was going to be epic. I mean, it was really, really like, it was an amazing. Uh, it's Messi's funeral and everyone's there and they're giving speeches. Everyone's there, like, uh, if I remember, um, um, Driscoll and Hutch were the team who actually really did, and and Clamfer, um, but it was set in the future and basically it was. It was like every athlete that Adidas had saying their fondest memory of Messi, you know, and it was flashbacks, but they were like modern day flashbacks. Right. And they were insane. They were just like crazy, crazy stuff because you're talking about the deceased and the funeral was in like a giant coliseum. And it ended with the whole left and right side basically breaking out in a giant football game around his coffin. You know, and it was. You're just, gonna end up making this for someone. It was amazing. Some, someone else equally and then, is great. Yeah, of course. Then he's smiling at the end as you pull up in his in his coffin. You it's know? still it, there's like yeah, five great. athletes in the world, including Messi, for whom this idea works. <laughs> and maybe you'll make one for one it of those other four. Yeah, maybe it's good. It was good. John, I've admired your work for a long time, oh, and man. I really I really enjoyed this, man. Thank you. Ditto, man. Thanks for having me. Cool. Appreciate. It. Okay, thank you so much to John Norman. Thank you to Jeff Fiorello, our producer and JSM Music. Thank you to The One Club. And if you like the pod, please share it with a friend and write a really nice review about it. Gush about how it's changed your career and been a transformative force in your life. Till next time, talk soon. Peace. <laughs>